have uh, fouled up the, the bulletin. Our first sermon this morning is a call to worship from Revelation chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 6. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things And for thy pleasure they are and were created. Although I was not converted until my adult years, I did grow up in church. And in my experience in uh, church up to the time of my conversion, although I had reflected very little upon it, religion was always presented as a very man-centered thing. I did most of my growing up in Pentecostal circles, and I might be able to go even further and say that religion was always a very self-oriented thing. There was, of course, a heavy emphasis upon salvation, and there's Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But it was it was an emphasis upon salvation that was a very me-oriented sort of thing. The helping of the self in various ways, both spiritual and temporal. But the emphasis was always upon the self. And God was comparatively very little considered, except insofar as he might be of some help to the self. So the focus was very much upon man and very little upon God. I um, have some evidence that this assessment was right. Your own experience uh, might very well testify to this. But 
after my own conversion and after my exposure to Reformed theology and the Puritans in particular, I felt this to be a very jarring change, a very different emphasis. My first exposure to the Puritans came uh, by way of Jonathan Edwards. And the first little volume I've got uh, concerning Edwards was called the Jonathan Edwards Reader. I think it was published by Yale University Press. And one of the very first things in that was something that Edwards wrote as a very young man. I think that he was maybe 20 years old or so, uh, a student. And he uh, wrote something called the Apostrophe to Sarah Pierpont, which was Sarah would become his wife. She was not at the time. She was maybe only 13 or 14 years old at the time. But this struck me, not so much as far as what Edwards was saying about Sarah, but what it, what it said concerning um, the ideal relationship with God as it was perceived by Edwards and by his people, by his culture. Let me read this to you. And I want you to notice the, the way that God is talked about. I had never in all of my life ever heard anybody talk about God this way. And I, I grew up in Pentecostal circles, very emotional, but I never heard God talked about in this way. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world. And that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delights. And that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. That she expects after a while to be received up where he is. To be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven. Being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of, it, of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and a singular purity in her affections. Is most just and conscientious in all her actions and you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness and universal benevolence of mind especially after those seasons in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always of joy and pleasure and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone and to wander in the fields and on the mountains and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. 
this, uh, no doubt, is a very idealistic presentation of Sarah. But what it does tell us is, is something of uh, an ideal view of what the uh, of a Puritan relationship with God. But there were some expressions in it that I had never, uh, I'd never seen the like. This great being as he is referred to several times here. As I would read on in that reader and in the other works of Jonathan Edwards, Edwards would frequently talk about the beauty of the divine being. Just in and of itself. And how the truly converted heart will love holiness and be drawn to holy conduct because it has an appreciation of the beauty of God's holiness, longs for it, longs to behold it, and to know it better, and to imitate it in conduct. From that time to uh, this, I've, I've longed to enter into a fuller understanding of what's being said here, because I do confess it's very easy for me to be Man-centered. Very easy for me to be me-centered. But here we have a very different standard set in front of us. The ideal is to become very God-centered. This is what we have in Revelation chapter 4 with the spiritual view of the church. The centerpiece of this vision is the divine throne. That is the center of everything that we will see. And it's certainly the center of this uh, spiritual presentation of the church. The assembly of the saints, the 24 priest kings, all there, all represented. And their ministers in their midst doing what ministers do, which is ministering and most immediately proclaiming what I think might rightly be characterized here as the divine glory, which is a brief view of the totality of all religion. And it's very different, isn't it? The totality of all religion being shifted from being man's salvation to being God's glory. And learning to see even Salvation, as great as it is, is simply a means to that end that God would be greatly glorified and more fully display his attributes. Now, here in uh, the second half of verse 8, we have this ministerial declaration of the praise of God. And it has three parts. The first of which is holy, holy, holy. You will no doubt remember this from Isaiah chapter 6. This is the cry of the seraphim, the angelic beings which are about the throne of God. The uh, seraphim quite literally mean uh, the burning ones. He makes his ministers a flame of fire, as, as it were. They are set ablaze with zeal for the glory of God and their call one to another is holy, holy, holy. This is a very common word in the scripture. 
a very common word in Christian conversation. But uh, I do want to make sure that we know what it means. This is obviously very important in that it is three times repeated. That God is almighty is only said one time, but that he is holy three times. Holiness in its basic import and intention means separateness. If you're going to understand uh, reading the Levitical law, you have to understand this. When something was dedicated to God for particular use or end, it was called holy. Not that it took on some special character or magical quality. It means that it was set apart unto uh, God's use set apart for use in his worship. Uh, So we would mistake the scripture when, uh, for example, uh, a beast or a bit of precious metal or a place, if we think of them as being having some special magical quality because they are called holy, we misunderstand. They are called holy because they are separate. And they are set apart to a peculiar purpose. They are set apart for God and his services. When we talk about God being holy, we mean this in two regards. The first sense is more universal and it's broader. God is set apart from all other things in that he is the creator and everything else is a creature. And in that, he is greatly glorified. He is singular and alone in his holiness in that regard. This is the thing that leads the seraphs to cry out, Holy, holy, holy. This great being is set apart from all other beings. He is the creator and everything else is simply a creature. This is going to be part of the worship of the 24 priest kings. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were and are created. God is set apart in this regard. However, usually when this comes comes up in Scripture, it speaks of God's moral separateness from fallen creatures. And in this sense, God is also uh, described as holy. It speaks of his moral perfection and rectitude as over against uh, sinful people. The Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation is described in this way. He was holy and separate from sinners as he's described in Hebrews. So in this way... um, God is not necessarily alone because there are legions of angels that did not fall. And in this way, they are also separated from uh, mankind and that they remained in their native moral perfection. They are not fallen creatures. But uh, when holiness comes up in the scripture with respect to God's relationship to man, this is normally what's in view. He is morally perfect and we are not. Uh, 
God is greatly glorified in, in His holiness in as much as it speaks of His transcendence, His transcendent excellence, His majesty as King over all things, and His moral perfection. And so here we see a display of God's glory. We have a second question here, and we ought to ask the question, why is it said here three times rather than just once? Some, uh, some divines and interpreters look at this and say that there is here a, uh, a reference to the Trinity. And that is possible. Uh, but I don't think that that seems to be what's in the foreground. You should always remember in your reading of the scriptures that one of the ways that the Hebrews emphasized a point was through repetition. We do this when we write by boldface or italics or underlining something. We have various ways of doing it in speech. But the way that the Hebrews did it both in speech and writing was by repetition. We see this in the uh, teaching of the Lord Jesus when he was pleased to emphasize something. He would frequently preface it with verily, verily or amen, amen. Basically, he's saying, this is true. This is true. And that um, emphasizes what he's getting ready to say. When you consider John chapter 3 and the necessity of uh, being born again, you get more than a pair of verilies. He says that several times. And the repetition of the lesson is several times. You must be born again. Why do you marvel when I tell you you must be born again? And he repeats it uh, many times. You see this in the Old Testament as well. In the book of Jeremiah, he says this, Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. This was the emphasis of the people surrounding him. They're making an argument that the temple of the Lord will not fall. And the way they emphasize this is, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're making a strong point. All the more striking when Jeremiah calls these lying words. Jeremiah, uh, that's chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 22, verse 29. O earth, earth, earth. Hear the word of the Lord. Emphasis. Or in the prophecy of Ezekiel, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. Chapter 21, verse 27. It strikes you in that way, doesn't it? When these things are, are repeated, that these are being emphasized. It does seem that when a thing was repeated three times, there was, there was a special and peculiar emphasis set upon it. And what do we take away from this but that ministers are to speak much and with great affection concerning this attribute of God, that He is holy. Mm -hmm. We find this to be much in their mouths. 
We have here a second description of God as well. He is called Lord God Almighty, which speaks of his sovereignty and his omnipotence, his omnipotent power over all that is. This is very important in this book because one of the things that we're going to see in God's design of history is that his design cannot be thwarted because he has all power. That's what omnipotent means. He has all power. There is nothing that can resist his hand. And we find here, this is in the mouths of ministers as well. They declare God's almighty power. And in this, God is also greatly glorified. He is not only glorified, but He is holy, set apart, majestic, righteous, separated from sinners. But He is also glorified in His power that He can do all of His holy will and no one can resist Him. Now, one final description which we have had before, which was and is and is to come. You'll have to think back a uh, good ways now. I won't do it with as much detail as we did it in the first chapter. But you remember, this is uh, evocative of the divine proper name, Jehovah or Yehovah. Jehovah is taken from the Hebrew verb of being, hayah, to be. It's actually very much like the uh, imperfect tense of it, which has an ongoing sense. So it communicates a sense of ongoing being, which speaks of his eternity. He is an eternal being. And by that we don't mean simply that he exists for a really long time or that he exists for all of the time although that's true it means that he is not defined in temporal categories or limited by them he is ah temporal which is where the word eternal comes from he's not defined in temporal categories but this description says a little bit more and is applied to the particular import of the book of Revelation. Here it's eternity as applied to time or the sense that God is present to all of time. So whether his people are in prosperity and are on the high places of the earth or whether they are upon the dunghill, they are reminded that God was and is and is to come. That he is present to all of time. And he is present to their time in particular and for their comfort. In your outline, uh, I have here as a point that in this, it does seem that these ministers are in a very brief and summary way preaching the whole counsel of God in just a very few expressions. You'll see there, just under certain interpreters, that basically in Poole's language means a great many. They simply assert, here is the sum of the doctrine of the gospel. Here's the whole counsel of God. Uh, Matthew Paterius, who was a, uh, a French Huguenot, it's not a name that you would know, but once upon a time, when people st still read Latin, it was a name quite famous among interpreters. And he wrote a famous 
uh, exposition of the book of Revelation. I've included his words here. Notice them. He says, the gospel teaches that God is first holy, that he endured sin and sanctifies his people. Second, the gospel teaches that God is our Lord, for he redeems us. We become his own. Three, the gospel teaches that God is omnipotent, for he did great things for us. This teaches that God was, for the promise of a blessed seed was made from the beginning of the world, and is, for he defends his church and perfects it more and more, and is to come, namely, unto judgment. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? In a very brief summary of just about everything that the Bible teaches from beginning to end. Another name that you likely won't know, Patrick Forbes, among our famous Presbyterian divines, a man um, infamous. He, in the 1630s, he was one of the Scottish bishops that was involved in trying to impose Episcopalianism upon uh, Scottish uh, Presbyterian Scotland. But he did write a rather helpful commentary on the book of Revelation even still. And we have his summary here. He says, The holiness of God is all the more admirable inasmuch as it is joined with absolute power. His truth confirms the certitude of his promises, is constant and truthful, as he is eternal and immutable, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Behold the entirety of religion. He, therefore, is to be feared, to be served, and faith is to be placed in him alone. I'd encourage you to think upon these things. And notice here, Forbes alludes to something that I didn't draw out. Notice here he says, His truth confirms the certitude of his promises. That's also a reference to the name Jehovah or Yahweh. This first comes up, the first full explanation that we have of the name Jehovah comes uh, in Exodus chapter 3. and really runs through about the sixth chapter or so. Uh, here, uh, the name Jehovah had been known from the patriarchal period. It wasn't new in the earth. But it had never been explained and applied in the way that it was at the burning bush. Uh, Jehovah will say that the patriarchs did not know me by this name. They knew the word. But they didn't have the full understanding of the word, which was being now explained to Moses. God had made promises to the patriarchs hundreds of years before first promises to Abraham uh, some 500 years before. And now, God was arriving to fulfill the promises. He says, this is part of the significance of my name. I'm present to all of time and faithful. What I promised 500 years ago to Abraham, I have now come to fulfill. And so, there's an allusion to this in Forbes when he says, his truth, the divine name, he who was and is and is to come, his truth confirms the certitude of his promises. He was constant and truthful. 
and see is eternal and immutable. Beautiful description. So here we find these ministers preaching the whole counsel of God, beautifully summarized by means of the divine attributes therein displayed. Normally when we summarize the truth of religion, we will do it with respect to, uh, if you remember the way Jesus summarized the truth of the gospel, he used a, um, with a sum of religion, he starts more with a, um, uh, an earthly view ascending heavenwards. But he said, if you read, read the Bible and understood it, Luke chapter 24, you would get these three things. That the Christ must be crucified for sins. That he must be raised from the dead again for justification. And that this gospel must be preached to the nations. That's the historical reality of the gospel. Here these ministers pray, uh, preach that same message, but from the perspective of the divine attributes. Same message, but two perspectives. And I wanted to take a few moments to meditate upon the works of God and their relationship to the attributes of God. Obviously, the works of God, His doings, are more immediately accessible to us. We think of creation, which we can see with the eye and hear with the ear. We can feel it and taste it. Providence and God's doings in the world and history. And redemption. These are things that are immediately accessible to us. They captivate our attention and they should. They are worthy of attention. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 70, or Psalm 77. Psalm 77, verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy works and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. With the psalmist, we ought to wonder and marvel at God's doings in the world. Creation, providence, and redemption. And since we have become the grand beneficiaries of all of this, we ought to give thanks, even as the uh, psalmist gives thanks. But if we stop there, uh, we stop most unhappily. Because all of our uh, contemplations of the works of God ought to 
lead us higher to consider what they teach us about the beauty of the divine being. You see some of this movement in the in the psalmist even here as he moves very easily and effortlessly from the works of God to what it tells about his being. But he's, I will remember the works of the Lord. That's where he uh, starts. He's going to make this his meditation. And then it leads him to a consideration of the greatness of the divine being, the second half of verse 13. And in this way, God has declared his strength or power. Verse 14, so we ought not, we will end up with a very man-centered religion if we stop short and we never proceed on to a contemplation of the divine being itself. And in this we ought to see God as being most beautiful. Another way of saying this is our thoughts always ought to ascend from the works to the worker. So, for example, when you consider the creation spread around you, when you look up at the heavens and you see the shining of the stars, it ought to lead you to a consideration of the strength or power of this great God. In the scriptures, the hanging of the heavenly bodies is described as his handiwork. In the Hebrew, quite literally, his finger work. As if this was... This great and powerful thing that was done was simply the work of his fingers. Just a little something that he did. When we consider the delicate balance of cause and effect in all of the universe and how this is so very necessary to keep and preserve the life of man, we ought to marvel at his wisdom. Most of you will have probably heard all of the various things from the creation scientists about, you know, if the earth was a little further away or a little closer, how life wouldn't be possible, or how if there was a little more, a little less water, life wouldn't be possible, and all of these sorts of things. You marvel at the delicate balance in which all of these causal factors sit. And you marvel at the divine wisdom. God, sometimes in the the Renaissance period, was described as a great mathematician who had balanced so very carefully all of these various factors. And when we consider that uh, God has done all of these things, not only for his glory, but for the well-being of his people, we ought to marvel at his goodness that he is a good God even to the fallen sons of Adam. And we could, we could go further. Uh, in the creation we have, dis- in, the, in a temporal creation, we have the rational necessity of an eternal being. And that eternal being is present to all of time, greatly glorified. And He is the creator. Everything else is a creature. He is holy. And so when we look at um, uh, the creation, our thoughts ought to ascend. And when we do so, we ascend from thanksgiving for benefits and for his works to praise the adoration of his being and his person. 
we learn even more about God when we consider providence. We know that He is uh, ruling and governing all things that are. And what does Paul say? Even when natural man looks at God's providence, we learn some other things. That He is holy in the sense that He is separated from sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, as he says in Romans chapter 1. And don't we know, and haven't we trembled even uh, in recent days, to see the great governor of all that is terrible against sin and destroying men by the hundreds and by the thousands in his great anger and in his controversy against sin. And so we learn that this great God also is just and that He will by no means clear the guilty. We can give great thanks and praise that God has given us more than just creation and providence because we would be left with nothing but a fearful expectation of coming judgment. But He has also sent to us, we are a privileged people, He has sent to us the Gospel. And we have learned in the Gospel that He is also a great God of love who in a very mysterious way has set His love upon unworthy and unlovable sinners. And that He is also gracious and merciful to those that are deserving, deserving of nothing but hatred and anger and wrath. And so he has made a very full display of himself. And such ought to move us to worship. Even now as the four living creatures are calling the 24 to worship God. And it's no longer a self-centered or man-centered worship because it's not the self or a man that's seated upon the throne the center of all that is, but is the great and the living God. And we find that we will no longer simply stop at the giving of thanks for the benefits that He has conferred upon them as great as they are, but our thoughts will then ascend to heavenly places to a consideration of God Himself. What Jonathan Edwards called that great being. And we have also learned that um, this ought to be the constant call of the ministers and ought to be in the mouth of every Christian to everyone that they meet. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. For His pleasure He has made all things and He is worthy to be worshipped and praised. Let us pray together.